Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Pop Culture Double Date. Um, as promised, we're back with Avengers Endgame. Now, we went to see Avengers Endgame last night and today, and Avengers Endgame is a bit of a uh, watershed movie for us as a group, as well as for the Marvel Universe. I mean, Avengers Endgame is the culmination of um, the Marvel movies of the last decade and a half, and also for us, like, personally, we started this podcast about a year ago, and our first podcast was Avengers Infinity War. So, um, yeah, it's it's really great that um, our crew has stuck with us for a whole year, and we've been podcasting for a year now. So I want to firstly thank um, my crew, like Anija, Jerry, Mags. Thanks so much for podcasting with us for this year. It's been really fun. Um, yeah, and I can't wait to talk about Avengers Endgame. Say hi, everyone. Yay! Hello! Hello! <laughs> Happy anniversary! Yeah, that's Yay. right. <laughs> um, okay, so let's just get straight into this, because um, we've done a few quite long podcasts now. So, um, so Avengers Endgame is basically the culmination of the MCU. Um, I think it's, it's quite a bold film. Um, it's, it's ostensibly a time travel story, a heist story, a big superhero battle story, and also a personal family story as well. So there's a lot of stuff that's kind of packed into this film. Um, it also... Oh, so before we get any further into this, this is a full spoilers podcast, so you've been warned. Um, I know that a lot of people don't want to be spoiled with Endgame, and I fully respect that, so if you haven't watched it, um, turn this off, go watch Endgame, and then come back and listen to us. But if you have watched it, let's keep going. So, um, yeah, so Avengers Endgame is the culmination. And I kind of wanted to start this podcast by going around the table and asking the big question, which is, well, what were our impressions, and did we feel that Marvel were able to stick the landing on this, right? Because they've had however many movies now, and... With this being so important, did the MCU actually manage to pull it off? Like, pull off the big the big movie franchise landing. So, Mags, do you want to kick this off? Yeah, definitely. So, overall, I really enjoyed the movie. I am a huge fan of all the, the movies um, in the... Marvel Cinematic Universe, and I thought they did a really great job of wrapping up the story of the Infinity Stones and how the different movies fit together. For me, the ending was very satisfying as a way of tying it all up, and it made it made it worthwhile to me to have stuck through 11 years' worth of movies to get to this point. Um, and it reminded me as well that, um, you know, the fact that I had followed through um, just demonstrated how well they they did in sort of setting it all up, whether or not it was um, an elaborate plan all along from the beginning or whether or not it was a sort of organic progression. Um, I, I thought they did a fantastic job there with the story. I was happy with the ending of each of the major characters' story arcs. Um, the only one I'm not so sure about is Captain America. I'm a huge fan of him and of his character, so I'm happy to elaborate further um, about my um, 
my concerns a little bit there. Um, I thought they set up some really interesting storylines and novel character groupings for potentially new uh, series of Avenger movies um, for sort of individual franchise plot lines as well as for maybe a new grouping of Avengers. Um, So it'd be interesting to see what they do next with that. Darren? Yeah, so, okay, I... I also, look, I agree with you. I, I felt like they stuck the landing. I don't think it was a perfect landing. I don't think it was like a 10 out of 10 landing. But they stuck it, like, to the level that was necessary to stick that landing. So I definitely felt, as someone who also has watched Marvel Cinematic Universe films over the last 10 years, I felt satisfied. I felt like, oh, it was worthwhile spending that time investing, um, uh, I guess, the mental <laughs> the money and the mental energy to watch those films like I, I i felt like it was an investment that was worthwhile um i i felt like this film was a really bold film um like they tried to do a lot of things um in this film right like as i said at the outset this was a film that combined um I think a whole lot of story. I mean, it's a three-hour film, but there's a lot of story. It's not just like in terms. Of, there's a lot of plot, and then there's a lot of character arcs as well that sit within that three hours. So I thought they were really like. I mean, I remember when we talked about Infinity War a year ago, we made the comment that we felt that Marvel was really bold and how it was only because of this universe that they crafted they were able to fit so many characters into these films, right? But the thing with Infinity War is that at the end of the day, Infinity War, the plot of Infinity War is very much focused on Thanos, right? Like, Infinity War was largely a character exploration of Thanos. So in some ways, the scope of the plot is, like, it's not a thousand character arcs going everywhere in Infinity War, right? I felt with Endgame, they, like, what we said about Infinity War, they took it and they were even bolder with it. They added way more plot in there. They added a time travel story in there, which is really, like, courageous in some ways. Some would say stupid, but, like, it's courageous because time travel stories are often inscrutable and, like, don't really make sense. And so within that, and then within that sort of whole, like, mess of plot that's lying there. They added, you know, you had to wrap up Iron Man's story, you had to wrap up Captain America's story, you had to wrap up Hawkeye's story, you had to, like, have give some time to, like, Ant-Man, and then you had this whole Thor thing that was running off, right? So, and Black Widow, and Hulk, and... So, like, it, it was just a lot of stuff that was really compressed. So, overall, I felt as a film... I enjoyed the film, and to be honest, I actually really want to see this film again, and I've been thinking about it a lot, which suggests that this is a really engaging, interesting, fun superhero film. So that's a tick from me. However, I I, I personally think that Infinity War was probably the better film, mainly because, like, I mean, it sounds crazy now saying this, but Infinity War, I felt, was more focused than Endgame. Um, So, I mean, for me, Avengers Endgame... Can, like is encapsulated like at the climax of Avengers Endgame there is this huge battle scene where Captain America says Avengers assemble and two battle lines basically run at each other and like 
engage and start fighting in this crazy, huge, all-out superhero on a field battle thing, right? And I felt like this encapsulated that scene, that how over-the-top that scene was, how, like, crazy and, um, like, all this stuff was going on all over the map. I felt that that scene was, like, this the distillation of kind of this movie, right? It was this chaotic but really, really satisfying, really fan service film, right? Where there were things that didn't quite make sense. There was a lot of elements of that battle sense that didn't, didn't quite make sense, right? Like, Mags was saying to me, well, where did Valkyrie get her Pegasus from all of a sudden? Wasn't she working at a fishery earlier? Like, where did she get her horse? And, like, where did all these, like, Asgardians and Wakandans and, like, magical sorcerers come from? Um... Why did that? Ha- they have that weird scene with all the women, like who were the women superheroes. It was like a little bit out of place because a lot of those people didn't actually know each other, right? But overall, even though there were these weird things that kind of happened, it still kind of hung together and it felt really satisfying. And for me, that's kind of like, mm. so this film was kind of like that. It was all over the place a little bit, but it did enough to, for it to all hang together and still feel really satisfying. So that's that's kind of where I stand on this film. Anna J. Jerry, who wants to um, next? I'm going to say I my first impressions, and we literally just saw it a few hours ago. My first impressions are that the film was miraculously brilliant. Absolutely <laughs> loved it. I think they completely pulled it off. I can't believe how well they pulled it off. Props off to Marvel Studios. They did an incredible job. First of all, it is three hours long. For a three-hour movie to keep your attention the whole way through and to keep you super entertained and, you know, like at the edge of your seats, wondering what's happening next is is a huge feat all in itself. Second, this is the culmination of more than twenty movies. You know that. Like, just think about that. And this is a very, I think, a very satisfying end to it because all the characters were involved. They all got kind of just enough time. Um, you kind of saw enough of your favorite characters and the B characters. You saw enough of to make it feel like everyone was playing a part. Um, there were enough emotional moments for the right characters for you to still feel that the story, it's still very character driven, um, as much as it is action driven, which is fantastic. The plot was super engaging. The three acts of the plot were all excellent. Um, look, I, I get what you're saying that the first, that, um, Infinity War seemed more focused. And I think that's because Thanos was the magnet or the Thanos was the driving force of that movie and that might have and his mission was what that movie was about which made it seem very focused because it was all about him whereas in the second movie like Thanos doesn't really play a huge role it's about undoing what Thanos has done um and there's a lot of characters involved but then I think I think in this universe if you're going to accept that Thanos can you know click his fingers and wipe out half of the earth then you kind of just stop asking questions really about what people <laughs> can and can't do with the magic and with this with the power of the stones and all of that and 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 i think definitely if you're going to bring in time travel as long as they're not ridiculously dumb about it i think you just have to accept that some things are not really going to make sense and never ever will when you have time travel but they did it well enough um, and they kept it simple enough, um, and they were smart enough about it for it to be perfectly fine. Um, but I loved it. Loved that all of my favorite characters got just the right amount of time um, in it. 
uh, thought it was fantastic. So that's just my first impression. Gerald? Um, wind back the clock 11 years. Um, 2008, two big comic book movies come out, Iron Man and The Dark Knight. Iron Man was was a very, very good film, very entertaining, and reintroduced uh, Robert Downey Jr. As a, as a movie star. The Dark Knight was the titanic achievement of that year. Um, some, some still regard it and uh, as the greatest comic book hero movie ever made. And if you would have asked me um, in 2008, which of these movies would be planting the seed of something truly great, truly special and epic in scope, I would have said The Dark Knight. Little did I know that Iron Man planted the seed for a 22-movie cycle that in its own way is sort of today's answer to the Homeric epics. Um, at least at least that's the feeling one is left with um, watching Infinity War and Endgame back-to-back. These are m- films of massive scope. And, um, you know, seven years ago when, when the original Avengers came out, everyone applauded Joss Whedon for the um, virtuosity with which he orchestrated these multiple plot lines involving multiple characters. And nobody thought it could be, it could be done. And now twice the Russo brothers have um, put together and assembled um, stories that are so elaborate in in scope and detail containing so many characters and following so many arcs that one is left staggered at the end uh, of this movie as to how um how they they pulled it off i think this was um a great achievement i actually think it exceeded um endgame uh, it exceeded infinity war because of the various tragic notes that were struck throughout the film um, and we'll get to them in due course. I think the only false notes, the, there are only two false notes in the movie for me. Um, the first was um, the fact that Hawkeye becomes quite a morally repugnant character in the first act of the film. Mm-hmm. And the movie tries to give him a sort of redemption arc, but he never actually really redeemed himself for how awful um, the things he did in the first act were. And the second thing is, in Infinity War, um, Thanos has almost a humanitarian mission. He sees much suffering throughout the universe and he wants to reduce the population of the universe so that the resources can be shared more evenly. Whereas in this movie, he has his motivation is that he feels a sense of frustration that the universe wasn't grateful to him. And, uh, and so he decides to wipe out all of existence and to build a new universe in its place. And so whereas Thanos was a humanitarian in well, sort of a sort of a humanitarian in his own mind. In, in the first movie, in this movie, he's more of a narcissist, and I think that sort of is a bit of a step back in terms of the the character the character development of Thanos. Otherwise, the movie was um, a great combination of action spectacle um, and human interaction and humour. The movie was very very funny all throughout it all throughout its running length. I mean, from from you know, uh, fat Thor through to um, Hulk left in a semi-permanent state of in-between human and and Hulk. I thought, you know, the movie was very, very funny. And that levity um, rescued it from being too dire, particularly because um, at various moments in time it got very, very heavy. Yeah. Uh, So... You know, the, the first act, for instance, could have been a sort of superhero equivalent of The Leftovers, the, the show about 
the what would what happens to the world after two fifths of the population uh, completely disappears. The movie was very much like that in its opening phase, but but I think it was rescued by the humour in the script, the charisma of the stars, and finally um, the sheer virtuosity with which the the spectacle was orchestrated. So, look, there are there are false notes in the movie. It's by no means perfect, but in the end. Uh, one cannot help but just sort of stand up and applaud and say, "Wow, this was uh, this was something 11 years ago that no one would have seen in the offing." And the fact that we are all throwing money at Marvel Studios in order to in order to get an extra fix um, is a testament to the way they've woven together this sort of interconnected series of stories and created a, a whole that's arguably greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah, look, I mean, look, I, I agree with this, right? And I mean, just as testament to how, I guess, engaging this film actually was. I mean, Mags and I went to see it last night, and we were in a cinema where there was... Like, I'm I'm not a fan of people cheering in cinemas, but this cinema was full of people who were cheering and clapping at many, many scenes throughout this film. And to be honest, even a... Um, withered misanthrope such as myself at certain points I genuinely felt like um, sort of joining in as well because there are some amazing superhero scenes in this film like at the end of the day with all the mash of genres that Marvel has this is still at its heart a superhero film and there are these amazing superhero moments um so okay, so let's let's dig in a little bit deeper, right? So Jerry, you mentioned the opening scene. So there's a couple of things I want to unpack um, from what we've just said. So um, you mentioned the opening scenes of this film, right? So the opening third—I I don't know if it's, it runs exactly a third—but the opening act of this film is actually I felt was really dark, right? Because everybody it was it did feel like the leftovers, but more than that, the opening of this scene. Like, did you guys feel that how off note it felt when they go and basically assassinate Thanos? Like, you know, they the opening of the scene is basically all the Avengers get together and they go, okay, he's killed half the universe. We're going to form a death squad and kill him. Right? No, they were trying to get the the stones back, so they yeah, could yeah, bring yeah. people back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this is true. But they, it was like it, they, it felt like it was being motivated by vengeance, right? There was there was something that was like quite dark about it, and it uh, was off note when Thor actually killed him. And I think one of the characters did turn to Thor and say, "What have you done?" Yeah. So yeah, I don't think that's why they went there. The the plan was to get the stones back and and get everybody back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I've got to say the the decapitation of Thanos is an unusually violent death for a villain in the MCU. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, and, but that and, line that that Thor's line of "I went for the head" was funny because it recalled yeah, what, that, yeah. <laughs> what Thanos yeah. said but to I him think, in the last movie. Well, what was really sort of dark was what happens after the five-year time jump. Exactly. So we begin with we begin with um, Steve Rogers in that in that sort of group therapy scene, and whilst it was it was refreshing to see that you know gay relationships were acknowledged in the world of the Avengers, of, of of the Avengers, where one of the, the the man talking in the group therapy scene is talking about having gone on a date with another man, and it's sort of it's not a big di- it's not played for any sort of big big emotional draw, it's just played very very matter of factly. I think, you know, it's well worth noting that there's a there's a there's a there's a nod in the uh, in the in the MC, on the part of the MCU to, 
you know, um, the, the, the reality of modern romance and the fact that LGBTQI people have a place in these movies. So you have that sort of dark group therapy scene. And then I've got to say, Hawkeye just turns into this monster. You know, Rhodey at one point tells Natasha Romanoff that he's he's found a bunch of corpses left by Clint Barton in Mexico and in such a gruesome state that he does not feel inclined to find Clint at all. And then we see him basically massacre, I think, um, some Yakuza goons in Tokyo, but he does it in such a sort of merciless and relentlessly violent way that um, by the time he ends the movie reunited with the family... You yeah, just think to yourself, yeah, dude, I don't think you deserve it. Yeah, but I mean, look, I, I actually thought it was very, I mean, I use the term bold, and I thought it was very bold of them to basically start the film on this very personal note, which is Hawkeye losing his family. Like, this film opens with basically, there's no fanfare, essentially, right? And it's just this sort of family scene, and then his family disappear, and it's it, it, you know, in the previous film, you get a sense of the horror of the people disappearing from the snap, but then immediately in this film, it takes you to this really personal place of mm. horror as well. And that first act, just it, there's just this level of discomfort. Like I, I thought it was actually really, really well done because it mm. captures that sense of discomfort and strangeness and grief that half the world's population has died, right? Um, and then you have these heroes that are left over, basically, you know, in all their interactions, everything is very dour and grim. And then when Tony gets rescued by Captain Marvel and brought back, it's like this... I, I, I generally felt the dialogue... I, I don't know if it's the actors. The dialogue was very well written. The interaction with the act- actors was very realistic as well. So I felt that was like a really strong, character-driven... Um, and un, unexpectedly intense opening to this film. And I thought it was, like, it was really bold. And then they did the five-year time skip, which I thought was even bolder. I thought they'd, like, do maybe six months, and then they'd, like, go and turn back time or whatever. But there's, like, a five-year period where all of these people are just missing, right? I was like, wow, that's that's an interesting decision to have that time skip in there. Um I think in the end it was um, good because it created interest because you were like, it created interest in, well, what happened to our heroes in the five years after this great defeat? How did they react to it, right? And it creates this um, sense of redemption because, you know, these guys need to pick themselves up after that sort of five-year lull. So I thought that was really... and it's, also, it's also a necessary plot device because it establishes the extent to which time differs in the quantum realm than yes. in the real world. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, so yeah, I, I thought there was... Um, yeah, I thought them doing that, the way that how dark that opening was and the five-year time skip was, was really bold. Um, what else did you guys really like about this film? Like Before we get into the specific characters, were there any other aspects of this film that we, we really really enjoyed that we wanted to bring out that Thor yeah oh, I loved that Thor that Thor <laughs> that was a genius move I mean yeah and the fact that fat Thor stayed fat throughout the entire movie it's not yes. as if there was, a, there was a moment when fat Thor <laughs> rediscovered his hammer and became beautiful Thor fat Thor stayed fat 
and was still awesome. Yeah, and, yeah. and then he put on his armor, and he's still fat underneath the armor, right? Like it wasn't that was like great. it wasn't like the lightning just instantly made him thin. I, I thought that was again bold, right? Things that you don't think that they would do. It's kind of like, you know, the Last Jedi. They talk, keep talking about subverting expectation. I felt like this film subverted expectation in a way that made the fans happy, right? Genuinely were like, oh, that is weird. I mean, because Thor has always been, like, in all of the Thor films, he gets his kid off and he's got the six-pack and everything, right? And the subversion here is basically, well, Thor's fat, but he's still Thor. Do you know what I mean? Like, so um, He's still charming, he's still funny, and he's still powerful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, a little bit less powerful, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that Thor standing in the halls of Asgard with his dirty grey t-shirt and his burgundy robe, talking to Rocket, that was... That was my one of my favorite. Oh, having a panic attack. Yeah, yeah it was so funny. <laughs> it was so funny. I loved it. Oh. For, for me, the other one was, well, there's so many. Um, I love the fact that a pivotal um, plot device, but also a, a device for linking the different Infinity um, Stone movies together, um, was them revisiting um, key moments in time. Um, and, yeah. and for us as fans as well to revisit key moments in the movies that we loved, like the major battle sequence in the um, Battle for New York in the first Avengers movie. Um, at that point when they went back into the time um, and they showed that um, scene in the um, cinema we, we were at, the entire audience just erupted into cheers. It was such a great moment. Yeah. <laughs> I wish yeah, I had your cool. audience. <laughs> and the thing is they, they wove in they wove in so many characters from the previous film. So they got you know, one of the one of the distinctive features of the MCU is they've gotten seriously high powered people to play cameo roles or to play supporting roles in these movies and they all came back for, you know, sort of even two or three minute appearances, not least of which was Robert Redford as Alexander Pierce. Mm-hmm. Um, the baddie in um, Winter Soldier, who comes back um, to um, to partake in the events directly after the third act of the first Avengers movie. Mm. I thought I thought every one of those appearances uh, was a lovely little Easter egg, a lovely little Easter egg for fans. Yeah, look, I, I, I especially so the Easter egg that I loved the most was actually in that scene, basically after the Battle of New York, and they've got the. Um, the scepter, you know, like the the shield guys come in and they take the scepter, and there's the recreation of the scene in Winter Soldier, Winter Soldier. when Captain yeah. America's in the lift, surrounded yeah. by the Hydra shield agents, right? And I loved that the way they resolved that was perfect. It's so good, right? <laughs> Instead of like getting into this fist fight with this these guys, Cap just gives him a wink and says, Hail Hydra, and just walks out of there. It was yeah. so great. I was like, wow, okay, this is, this is like, it felt like it's this super satisfying culmination of, you would only really understand that if you had seen those, cap- like, Winter Soldier, right? You would complete, like, if you had not seen that film, you'd be like, why did Cap just do that? Doesn't make sense. But, you know, like... Having seen that film, it's just like ah, it fits right. It's it's so it's so clever, and even like I I felt like the whole Cap going back in time when he fights himself as well. There's something like really fitting and 
funny about that, right? When he basically is complaining about his own stubbornness and his own, like, how he he doesn't, like, give up, right? Like, you know, when Cap says, I can do this all day, and, well, Cap says mm-hmm. to himself, I can do this all day, and the future Cap is like, yeah, uh, I know, <laughs> right? In this really <laughs> dejected voice. I thought that was perfect, right? So, yeah, definitely um, very satisfying moments there. Um, any and other... I think the film, I think the film actually figured out how to use Carol Danvers. It, it still didn't give a proper explanation for why she was missing during the events of the first movie. But mm. the thing is, when you have a character as powerful as as, as Captain Marvel, um, there's a real temptation. Or I think it would be it would kill the drama and the tension of the movie if you were just to play the Captain Marvel card all the time, because there'd be an easy fix for every problem. And the thing is, there's only two. There are only two big things that that Carol Danvers does in, in this movie. One, she rescues um, Tony Stark and Nebula when when they're on the cusp of dying. And secondly, she returns and brings down Thanos' ship. Um, and so, because she's used so sparingly, she and because she's not available to the main crew of the Avengers for them to call upon at any time for any purpose. Uh, because she's busy, you know, putting out fires in thousands of other planets. Um, that solves the problem of her being too easy a magic bullet. Mm. Uh, and I think that, that that's a problem that, that DC is yet to figure out with Superman. Because Superman's so powerful that, you know, he, so, he solves every problem. Whereas that's not the case with Carol Danvers because she's spread out so thin and she's, she's managing so many problems all across the universe. Yeah. Um, And so I I think the fact that she was used sparingly, but but tellingly, uh, was a a wise choice on the part of the makers of the movie. Look, I I agree with that. And I think, actually, it sets up her character for more interesting stories. She's not, like... The the way they've set her up is that she is all over the universe. So her stories can be hugely diverse and cosmic in scale, right? They're not sort of earthbound. So I, I think that actually makes for a more interesting... Um, set of stories going forward and a more interesting character. Um, so agreed, agreed on that. Um, so, like, I, I think the other thing I kind of wanted to touch on also was that I felt that. So we'll go into the specific characters and whether we felt like um, their resolutions were satisfying immediately after this. But um, I think actually it's interesting, Jerry, that you started your chat by saying that The Dark Knight came out in the same year as Iron Man, because I felt like what I liked about this film was that this film had hard resolutions for a lot of, um, well, quite a few of the main, mainline Marvel characters, right? So Iron Man, Captain America, Scarlet Witch to a Certain things, I don't actually think Starlet Witch is dead dead, but anyway. Um, and, um, yeah, so definitely Captain America and, um, and Iron Man. And, you know, to a lesser, to, to a lesser extent, you also have resolutions for, like, Thor, Hulk, blah, blah, right? But definitely Captain America and Iron Man, right? And I was reflecting like on this. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I was reflect, I was reflecting on this, and I was like, in the, in comics, Characters like Captain America and Iron Man will never have a proper resolution because the serialized nature of comics basically means that they will fight an unending 
fight, right? They'll they'll keep creating drama for them infinitely, right? And it was telling that in the Nolan Batman films that Nolan chose to give Batman a definitive end, right? It was and it was kind of like one of these moments where you can actually do that in the movies even though you can't do it in comic books. And in some ways giving a character a definitive end, a definitive close to their story is more satisfying because the, you see the complete character arc, right? And I felt like Marvel kind of took that idea and were like, we're going to give definitive character arcs to our main Avengers characters, right? And I thought that was for the better because you don't want these guys battling forever. You don't want this to become the farce of modern day comic books, essentially, right? Where it's just this endless, endless um, serialized story. Um, So yeah, I I thought, again, like the term that I used was bold. I thought it was bold and um, clever of them to basically go, well, look, you know, I'm going to give Captain America an ending. I'm going to give Iron Man an ending and that's it. And then new heroes will... um, take up their their spot if we if we're going to make new films right i thought that was a really clever um way of doing things and i thought it was a a very satisfying from an audience's perspective as well Mm. um okay should we um talk about specific characters now like how how we felt um whether we felt specific character arcs were satisfying or not um or are there any other scenes that we want to really talk about in particular Okay, let's let's just get into um, specific characters then. Um, so let's let's do, deal with the big elephant in the room. Did we like the way they resolved Iron Man? Look, I'm going to say yes. Look, last movie I said I didn't really want to see any more of Iron Man. That he was my least favorite <laughs> character in the universe. I kind of take a bit of that back now because I think they they dealt with his character arc really well. I I. I liked that he. It started off showing him with a daughter and um, married to, to Pepper because I think that's what we we thought was going to happen, um, and it did. So no surprises there. I liked that he went. He he really had to think about whether he wanted to get involved in this battle given that he had so much to lose now and at the same time there really was nothing to to think about because he always was going to get involved which is what pepper Potts kind of says to him and he knows himself as well um i like that he went when he went back in time he met his own father and i think that is what gave a lot of closure to him and sort of helps him um round off his arc in a satisfying way because i think one of the things his dad says to him is you know i hope my son doesn't end up like me and he says um and then tony says to him what would be so bad about that and his dad says well i've never really done anything for the good of mankind if it wasn't of benefit to me so he kind of he kind of says in a regretful way i've never really been self-sacrificing or putting others first i hope my son doesn't turn out that way and he also says to tony you know he's not even my son's not even born yet and i'd already do anything for him so it was kind of that sense of my father really loved me that maybe tony was was lacking for uh much of his life and so um at the very, very end, when Tony then had to make um, the ultimate sacrifice of his own life to save everybody else, um, I just think that it 
it um I mean I think he would have done it anyway right because mm. he was always putting his life at risk but I think this gave it um a sense of I am a good person and I can be at peace with myself for him that um and, and they spelt that out with the little you know with the with the little plaque that was on him um proof that Tony has a heart mm. yeah I liked it what did you guys think Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought I thought that was absolute. I, I couldn't agree more. I think three things get resolved in Tony Stark's story. The first, of course, being the relationship between him and his father. Um, and we we saw in particularly the opening scene of um, uh, Captain America: Civil War that there was a fraught relationship between Tony Stark and Howard Stark. They didn't know each other particularly well. They weren't particularly close to each other. There was tension between them. And the fact of the matter is that in this movie, he learns that his father did love him all along in a, in a way that his father couldn't express during his life. The second thing that gets resolved is, of course, the feud between um, Tony Stark and Steve Rogers, uh, which also hooks into the, the relationship between um, uh, Tony, Tony and Howard Stark because um, Steve Rogers was seeking to protect uh, Bucky Barnes, who killed both of, both the Stark parents. So... Um, that too gets resolved. Um, it, it, it's not such a big thing in this movie, but it, it, it is worth noting that, that it happens and that it, it, again, the battle of ideas between the, the two, two, two of those characters is actually alluded to in the earlier passages of the movie because, um, uh, Stark blames Captain America in part for not signing up to the idea of basically, basically, you know, building a massive dome around the planet in order to protect it from the, the horrors of the universe. Um, and so the, the willingness of Stark to go the extra mile to sort of clamp down on freedom in order to achieve protection is an, is an idea that sort of gets a bit of play in this movie, but it's, it, it, it's ultimately put to one side and not explored in the same way that it was in Captain America Civil War because the two of these heroes have to resolve um, they break down in their relationship. And finally, we, we find that there's the ending to the story of, of Tony Stark. And, and I think it's, a, it's, a, it's well worth remembering that when you first see him, Tony Stark is this narcissistic playboy um, weapons manufacturer bazillionaire um, who, whilst he um, becomes more empathetic in the course of Iron Man itself, um, is nonetheless extremely flawed and extremely um, and, and in no small part traumatized by um, what happened in the first Avengers movie. The, the, the fact of that trauma pays heavily in Iron Man 3. And, and in this movie, he's far more willing to sacrifice himself and be comfortable with the notion of being sacrificed than he was in the final act of the Avengers. And, that, I think, is another sign of the sort of increasing selflessness and maturity of Tony Stark. So when, when he dies, it is all the more poignant because the, he gives himself in a, in a moment of, I think, sort of self – his death come his death is the moment of growth for, for Tony Stark. So I think it was an, it was an impactful um, – it was an impactful death uh, in this movie. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, Max? I think that was really. Uh, yeah, thanks, Darren. And I thought that was really well said by Anna and Gerald. Um, I think the other 
relationship that was resolved with um, uh, Iron Man's relationship with Spider-Man. Um, mm. so, you know, like the only when he was thinking through, well, what's what's the value for me now that I've got a family to to reverse, um, you know, the the past. And even though it's been painful, the last five years has also been incredibly joyful. And he kept, you know, he looked in the kitchen in his um, ranch. He found a picture of himself with with Spider Man. Um, and one of the last people that he sees on the battlefield before he dies is Spider Man, and he gives him this big, big hug. Um, so I thought that was really um, that was really emotional and powerful. Um, I also thought as well, um, in terms of the character dying and who would, I suppose, fill that gap for the next lot of um, characters for the future of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, it seemed reasonably clear that Spider-Man is kind of um, stepping into that role um, that's left by Iron Man, um, not in terms of a leadership role, I suppose, but more as, well, Iron Man's subbing out, who's subbing in? Um, and I think it, it kind of implied that Spider-Man could be part of that. Um, and also there's enough people, I suppose, in um, Tony Stark's world who could carry on his work and his legacy. Um, and so, because, you know, him dying and sort of being able to um, peacefully resolve, um, you know, all the different things he was doing, um, the fact that there were people there who could take forward his legacy was also satisfying to me. Yeah, especially, like, if you think about it, Pepper Potts at this point, um, she she still has the extremist stuff inside her, right? With that, with that, do you think that's accurate? Because in Iron Man 3, she was pumped full of super soldier serum. And she wears an mm-hmm. Iron Man suit this time. Like, in... Pepper Potts had technically become a superhero because she has super serum, soldier serum and Please a suit no. of armor. Please <laughs> 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 um, Yeah. Look, I, I agree. I, I also felt that the Iron Man arc was very satisfying. Um... I felt like it was, um, his arc is kind of reflected in a lot of the other characters as well, because there's this theme of self-sacrifice. Like, and actually, this is, I think, what makes a lot of this film quite satisfying, even though there's so many disparate storylines, because there there is a consistent theme that runs through a lot of the hero storylines, which is about um, putting aside one's own ego and self-sacrifice, right? Like, how sacrifice is kind of the mark of a hero willing your willingness to sacrifice some of yourself in order to save others is the sign is the mark of the hero right um and i thought that was i mean it's in a lot of characters arcs but obviously in tony's arc it's it's writ large um i think i mean jerry is absolutely right in the course of the first iron man film tony stark goes through a small a character arc right which is very satisfying within the film itself but when you look at the overarching his overarching journey throughout the entirety of these marvel films it's like so much larger right and i think there was a reason like so at the end of the first iron man film you know they do the press conference the last scene of the first iron man film is that they do this press conference where they don't know who iron man is and tony stark comes out and everybody's telling him, don't tell people that you're Iron Man. And he just comes out and says, I am Iron Man, right? And he does this because he's this arrogant, 
he's like despite all his his journey in the first Iron Man film, he's still like a bit of a self-serving arrogant prick, right? And then in this film, they also have the line, I am Iron Man. But it's said in a very different vein, right? It, it's an affirmation of that self-sacrifice and the individual that he's become. And I, I think, like, those two lines, the, the mirroring of those two lines throughout these films forms, like, this sort of... I mean, there are so many threads that carry out through these films, but having, like, that line is this really powerful, mm. um, distinct thread that connects Iron Ma- the beginning of Iron Man's arc and the ending of his arc as well, which, mm. again, is... And we keep using the word satisfying, but it's exactly what it is. It feels... Right. So, That's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. And there's a, there's a there's actually a very good counterpoint to that in the in the and sorry to move away from Iron Man, but in the in the Captain America arc, because whereas Tony Stark comes to accept the burdens of sacrifice uh, and to place others above himself and to say the words "I am Iron Man" without a trace of arrogance and douchery, um, the story of Captain America in the in the past number of films that he's been in is of this basically a boy scout. He's constantly giving of himself, being a leader to um, elements of Shield, being a leader to a good many of the Avengers, um, and uh, seeking to to fight on behalf of truth, justice, and the American way to such an extent that he that he just you know has no life. And what we find out at the end of this movie is that at the very end, after having fought and won. Captain America decides to do something for himself and to have a life and to reconnect with Agent Carter and basically get married to her. And not only marry her, but he's so protective of that. He wants that so much to himself that when um, when Falcon asks him, do you mind telling me about this, looking down at the wedding ring on um, Steve, old Steve Rogers' uh, ring finger, he says, no, no, I won't tell you about that because that's something for himself and for himself alone. So whereas whereas Tony Stark um, goes from someone who's sort of narcissistic, narcissistic and then learns to um, place others above himself, Captain America, a man who's sort of constantly giving of himself, finally takes a moment to, t- to have a bit of a breather and, and, and do something for himself and, and to preserve some part of himself for himself. Mm, mm, agreed, agreed. So agreed. Let, let's, let's talk about Captain America. Max, I know, do, do you want to talk about this a little bit? Because I know that um, you felt, like, I, I can understand, like, I think Gerald's description of that, um, the resolution of Cap- Captain America's arc is um, spot on. But I also, like, do you want to talk about your, your, your feelings on the resolution of the Captain America storyline? Yeah, yeah. Um... I mean, as you know, I'm a huge Captain America fan, um, and I also love that it, that his storyline ended with a sort of romance <laughs> um, with him sort of in the arms of, of his true love. Um, I think I'm conflicted for two reasons. Um, not because I wanted I want Captain America to continue to fight and to give himself endlessly, um, you know, like. Um, like Iron Man, it's sort of time for him to rest, and his journey is done. I suppose is, um, you know, he's given it. Watch has ended. Yeah. Yes, he's watched yeah. ended. Thanks. He's watched ended. Yes. Um, um, but at the same time, I kind of, 
that like the character of Captain America has been defined by this kind of unrequited love for Peggy Carter. That's, you know, the fact that he couldn't resolve it um, and that was really the only thing that would have prevented him from following through his journey of being this, you know, incredible superhero that protected um, the world. Um, so removing that, it really was removing the mantle of Captain America from Steve Rogers. He, it's like he decloaked, I suppose. He put he put the shield down and he, he was no longer, that moment when he decided, I'm going to go and marry Peggy, is the moment he decided, I'm not Captain America anymore. And I'm not sure if I, I don't know why that, that made me incredibly sad. <laughs> um, the other thing I think was um, that unlike, um, unlike Iron Man, um, I, I don't know, I, I don't feel as uh, satisfied with his successor, I suppose. Um, so the person who he tapped on the shoulder, um, so to speak, is Sam Falcon. He's the one who he gave the shield to. And because we only really spent quality time with Sam um, in one movie, which is Winter Soldier, and not that much time, um, I don't have as much of a, I guess, connection with that character. Um, and so when he gave the shield to Sam and said, you know, you're, you're ready, you know, how does it fit when he puts it on? Um, there's a lot of expectation there, and I, I'm just not sure whether or not that, that can be met given, you know, how much we've invested and how much the, the cinematic universe has invested into Captain America as a character. So, um, yeah, I, those were the reasons why that was a bit, you know, I was less satisfied with the Captain America ending. Mm. I don't know if you guys agree with that. I mean, I, 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 I am not so invested in Captain America. So I, when Gerald sort of uh, gave his views, I, I completely agree with what he said. But I think, Mags, maybe the reason why it, it was sad for you is that um, his kind of choice of marrying Peggy implies that that being Captain America was the wrong choice for him all along, like the choice that he wasn't ever really all that happy with and that, you know, that he never really came to terms with that because um, he would have always gone back and made a different choice if he could. I don't know. But I, I also think um, in terms of Sam as the new Captain America, all I'm going to say about that is that I think the optics of that decision are, are excellent. Mm, mm. Yeah. 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 Look, I, I think it's more the issue. It's, more- it, it's, it's not necessarily – like, I think it's more around as in with – Spider-Man, you have a full movie that is dedicated to him and you see the interaction. So in terms of the specific... the like, It's not to say that Sam can't be a great Captain America. It's more that they haven't set it up as well as um, like that sort of succession with Spider-Man, essentially, right? So, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I can kind of see yeah, where Max yeah. is coming from with that, yeah. Yeah, like if they, if they want to... If the implication is they're going to build more of the franchise around the Falcon character, um, then that's that's promising. Um, but if it's more um, Sam's a, you know, is a friend of Captain America and, and the two sort of um, uh, minor superhero characters, Bucky and Sam, are the two who are closest to Captain America besides the main Avenger cast. Um, and that's why they chose, you know, 
they they gave the shield to, to Sam. Um, for me, it's kind of less satisfying because they haven't invested as much time in that relationship as they could have if that was where they were aiming all along. Um, so that that's yeah, that's the reason why. It is a bit of a weird choice. I mean, I, I agree that the optics are, are great, but in many ways, a sort of more um, understandable choice for successor to Iron Man is Bucky, because Bucky's mm. got the super speed, having Winter Soldier, and Bucky's now a good guy, um, and Bucky has that has that deep emotional connection with um, with Steve Rogers, and so you can understand how. Bucky being so connected with Steve Rogers would fit, would step more easily into the shoes of Steve Rogers than any other character in the MCU. So, um, so there, there possibly are other, you know, sort of bigger choices, more, more understandable choices, uh, by way of successor to Captain America. But having said that, you know, Anthony Mackie's a good actor. Um, and I think, you know, so, Falcon's a slightly limiting character given the nature of what he, he does. Mm. So the fact that he gets to do something else and don and wear the shield, I think is, it's a good step for the MCU. I think, um, it, it, given, you know, one of the criticisms that has been made of the, of the MCU until, um, say, Black Panther. Uh, Black Panther was that it, it, in terms of, if you look at the sort of the, the, the heroes who have movies, it's a pretty homogenous bunch. And with Black Panther and with Anthony Mackie stepping in, Sam Wilson becoming um, a, a Captain America, I think that's that's a that's a sort of good and powerful rejoinder to um, to uh, you know sort of what DC has been trying to do in its attempt to diversify its slate of characters. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, look, I, I think for me, the Captain America ending. And I'll talk to about this a little bit later, but I, I, <laughs> I, I, I felt like it was satisfying, but like there was a logical flaw in that. Like there was a time travel thing that I didn't quite get with his ending, that I'll talk about later. There are a few time travel things that I don't quite get with this film. Um, they're nitpicks, which is why we'll talk about them at the end. But that was really my only main issue with that. Should we talk about Thor? Yeah, let's talk about Thor. Why don't you shoot, Anna Let's talk about Thor. I I, I thought he got an excellent um, resolution to his character. So I think throughout all of the Thor movies, some of the things that Thor has always struggled with is this idea of being worthy, um, battling with Loki for being the king of Asgard, um, dealing with being the king of Asgard, given Asgard's really troubling history. And I thought it was really, really great um, how they resolved it by pretty much with that conversation that Thor had with his mother, where she kind of took all of that burden away from him just by saying to him, you don't have to be something that you're destined to be. No one has the right to kind of put that on you. And no one's very good at being what they're destined to be anyway. All you have to be is who you are. And um, so that decision he makes at the end that I don't actually want to be king it's kind of I've always kind of had a hard time struggling with this idea and I'm just going to go off and have adventures uh you be king to um to uh what's her name what's uh um I liked it I liked it I I I absolutely agree because Thor's character like for all of the films he's never been a good administrative leader or a like 
a super inspirational leader. He's always been an adventurer, right? Like, Mm -hmm. he's at his best when he is essentially swashbuckling or, like, basically getting into fights and adventures, right? Like, you get the sense that that's what kind of makes him happy as a person, right? I mean, he has... I mean, I think it's shown throughout the films that he has a strong moral core, but he's not someone who sits there and sits on a throne and rules. That's mm-hmm. at no point in his character development was that him. Was that him? So I absolutely mm-hmm. agree with that, right? And I actually thought that scene with Rene Russo, um, like Forsman, I can't remember what his mother Freya, I think it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the scene with Freya, I thought was really powerful, right? Like. Um, like yeah. this idea of him getting to see the mother that has passed away and um, basically her saying to him, look, you don't have to tell me what happens, right? But she just gives him this sort of final gift. It was it was really like emotionally for me, that was probably one of the emotional high points. In the, it, it definitely um, struck a personal chord with me. There was a lot of personal resonance with that scene. Um, yeah, I, I felt a little bit sort of um sort of teary inside (laughs) watching that scene and it was really um it was really like what she said was really powerful and moving as well so i I thought i thought it was really great um yeah um i i also like that did she say to him that he should have a salad (laughs) i like how it's just this little because the mother never says that you're fat but she's like Yeah, I must confess that I was distracted a little bit in that scene by just how bad Rene Russo's British accent was oh, because yeah. he, kept, he kept on coming in and out, and yeah. uh, and it was just sort of like I, I don't remember her previous appearances particularly well, but I don't recall the awfulness of her accent being so blinding, so glaringly obvious in in any previous Thor films. Yeah, but like everyone else, I think I think it's absolutely right to say that. Uh, Thor has struggled with the notion of being the heir of Odin because the the crown of Asgard was a, did not sit well on his head, and the fact that he comes to recognise that in this movie and pass the mantle of leadership to Valkyrie um, is a moment again of self insight and realization that I think that had previously um, eluded him in all the in all the previous films. I mean, in, in the very first Thor movie. He, he's, he's like young Simba. He, he just can't wait to be king and he just wants to, he just wants to lord it over, um, mm. Asgard. Mm. Um, and by, by Thor Ragnarok, he's just, you know, some smart ass cool dude who just sort of kicks ass across the galaxy. And, um, that, you know, yes, by the end of that movie, um, he does lead, um, the Asgardian refugees away from, Asgard as it as it falls, but but that was a moment of sort of situational leadership rather than leadership by dint of you know his capacity to rule. Um, on, on the topic of which, how did Korg get to be in this movie? Because the Asgardian refugees are mostly wiped out at the beginning yes. of Avengers: Infinity War. There's no Korg, and Thor seems to be the sole Asgardian survivor. And the same might be said of Valkyrie, I, I should say. Like, so not, neither of them you see in Infinity War. And 
all the Asgardians have been wiped out in the first five minutes of that movie. So it's a relief to see both of them, especially especially Korg, because he's just so funny. But um, but I thought it was still a bit weird to, to see them, given that um, the movie seemed to um, consign all the Asgardian refugees to a horrible fate. Well, more than that, in the big climactic battle scene, the sorcerers summon Asgardians, right? So you know yeah. how all the people that were undeleted, essentially, moved out of, like, the trash back into, like, the desktop. Like, they... Like, they were Asgardians. I was like, hang on, they weren't... They, they didn't get deleted by the snap, right? I, I thought they died at the beginning. And it's kind of implied, isn't it, that Stephen Strange is the guy who coordinated all of this? Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. like... That was a weird moment. How, how did Spider-Man he do that? Returned. Yeah. Can... Spider-Man returns, he says, oh, yeah, you know, Doctor Strange said it's been five years, but we've got to come out now. And and given that they were they all come out of the, the orange disc that yeah. is the sort of sorcerer's... Uh, the sorcerer's way of, uh, bringing, various, of bringing various realities together, um, it, it kind of seems as if Strange was, like... Despite being dead, coordinating all of this, yeah, it, it's very <laughs> well, strange. No, look, like, when he came, go, go, go manager. <laughs> when he came back to life, he would have known exactly what to do. But right? he had so like thirty like minutes, was... less than thirty minutes yeah. to pull like an <laughs> army of thousands. Plenty of <laughs> like, time. Just makes a phone call <laughs> and it's done. Yeah. Don't look like. Just believe me. I don't have to explain. <laughs> so, here maybe, maybe, maybe it wasn't strange. Maybe it was Wong. So Wong. I think, I think talking about the plot holes is it does this movie a disservice, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we're going to talk about the big time travel plot holes in my mind very soon. Okay, go but... on. Yeah, go I, on. I just, with, um, with Thor, I love that the the ending is this sort of, well, firstly, that he's, again, one of those other characters where um, in his last moments he's, of him on screen, it's it's still growth. He's still growing as a character. He's still growing as a, per- a person. Um, I love that he's ended up with the Guardians. Because in some ways the um you know the the comedy in in Ragnarok really fits with the the comedy in um, the Guardians mm. franchise as well, and they picked up on that tension um, in Infinity Wars between him and uh, and oh Peter Quill, Quill. 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 yeah Peter Peter Quill as Peter well. Quail as Quail. 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 So I, I, yeah, I am really excited about Guardians Three. If Thor is going to be part of that as well, I think that's going to be hilarious. Yeah, I, I think that's a really like from a character, like just from a franchise perspective. I thought that was a great move, right? Because it fits the character. It makes sense, right? He's this swashbuckling guy, and the Guardians are basically of a similar nature, right? They're a bunch of misfits that go on adventures around the galaxy. It, it yeah. makes sense as a fit, so I, I, I thought that was yeah. really satisfying as well. And in the last movie, he basically, you know, flies off with Rocket Raccoon, so um, mm. he, he's now he's now a natural fit into that crew. Yeah. Mm. Let's talk about Nebula a little bit, because for me, Nebula was the dark horse of this film. Nebula was a character that, prior to this film... I felt like was a bit of a side character. Even in Guardian, she didn't get a huge amount of time. She had a little bit of a story arc, but she wasn't like one of the main sort of characters in Guardians. And in this film, I felt like uh, I, I really connected with her as a character, right? Like, I felt like, you know, you know, there's a whole time skip. She works with the Avengers and then um, she goes back in time. And then basically to go with this 
theme of sacrifice, she basically makes this sacrifice where she kills herself in order mm. to um, save the people who had been deleted, right? Um, I felt like her character arc, like for a character that was not particularly major when she was first introduced, I felt like she had, like she genuinely had a strong character development um, throughout throughout this film. I, I, I enjoyed her character a lot. And actually, um, I actually felt that in some ways it made more sense for Thor to go on Guardians and for Nebula to stay on Earth and hang out with the Avengers because from a personality perspective, she seemed, I don't know, like... It, anyway, that's, that's just kind of like my my hot take on that. Um, what, yeah, what, ne- Nebula, Nebula has always seemed like, the, the mo- like Gamora's moody little sister. Mm. And, and I think... Um, the two, the, 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 the one mo- moment before this movie um, that stands out featuring Nebula is, of course, the scene when she's being tortured in Infinity mm. War, when in sort of one of the most haunting pieces of character design, she's disassembled and sort of hung, um, bits of her hung from the ceiling um, in um, Thanos' ship. Mm. Um, now, we don't see anything quite as sort of like haunting and gruesome as that in this movie, but um, the fact of the matter is she's always been this sort of, um, uh, less loved daughter of Thanos, who feels a great need to prove herself, and the the past past Nebula is is of that ilk because when Thanos walks about walks onto the ship, she's the one who first bows down to him and says, you know, we won't fail in our mission, Father, etc. So whereas um, whereas uh, Gamora's always had a difficult relationship with. Thanos. Thanos has always favoured her more, and so Nebula, Nebula has had to step out from under the shadow of Gamora in this movie, as well as under the shadow of Thanos. Hmm. Um, and and so that aspect of her story, just coming into her own in a way, and and sort of realizing her place in the universe, liberated from um, the shadow of her sister and her father, I think is quite. Powerful and it, and it speaks again to the extent to which various characters in this movie come to know themselves in a way that they hadn't previously. Mm. You know, not it's not just Thor who achieves a moment of insight about himself; it's Nebula as well. Mm. Mm, mm, absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, we we've talked about just a handful of characters essentially, right? And all those characters have these arcs that run through this film and. Look, look, we could spend all day talking about each individual character, but I think it's testament to how much this film packs into it that not only do these characters have that, those arcs, but other characters also have arcs within this film mm. as well, right? So Yeah. yeah. Can, can we just say, like, it, it says something about how dense this movie is that in this discussion no one has mentioned the fact that, like, Black Widow dies. Yeah, um, because yeah. Yeah, I don't... There's no love for either Black Widow or Scarlett Johansson. But she's been a bit of a constant in the Marvel Universe, at least since Iron Man 2. And even though she's never gotten a movie to herself, she's there. She's just always there. And um, and the strange thing about her dying is I never thought there was much of a connection between her and Hawkeye. There isn't. <laughs> there wasn't. They made that up. There was, there was some of it in the opening stages of the first Avengers movie because they're both sort of assassins together. Hmm. But but 
that I never got a sense that there was a connection between them. There was always more of a connection between her and Bruce Banner, and certainly um, the Hulk is devastated when he finds out that she's dead. But so, so I always thought it was weird that that I, I thought it's weird that um, the two who seek out the Soul Stone and who have to make a decision of whom to sacrifice are Hawkeye and the Black Widow for for various reasons, not least of which is that Hawkeye was married to another woman, and the idea of sacrificing someone you love, albeit platonically, uh, to, just doesn't work given the the general absence of a connection between those two. Mm. But, That's because they chose yeah. the Hulk for comedy purposes as opposed to this kind of emotional punch, mm. which, to be honest, those, the Hulk and, and, and Skadra, Black Widow, have been apart for so long that I don't know they could have supplied that emotional punch anyway. And so they, they just manufactured it between um, Black Widow and, um, uh, and, and um, Arrow Guy so that the Hulk could be used for all this comic relief back with um, – with um, Iron Man and Captain mm. America. So I think that, I, I just think it was all plot, plot mm. driven, like, you know. Yeah, look, I mean, I did find it odd that they chose to end, like, end Scarlet Witch in that way. Um, it's not Scarlet Witch, um, Black Widow in that way. Um, mainly because I thought they greenlit a standalone film with her. So how is she going to do that? Could be a prequel. Yeah, I thought it was a prequel. Hmm, Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not actually convinced that Sc- uh, that Black Widow is dead. Dead. I know they say. No, that, she's but... dead. <laughs> <laughs> the Soul Stone has the Soul Stone. You have to pay the Soul price for the Soul Stone, and she well, is I'm... dead. But having said that, I imagine the next Guardians of the Galaxy movie is about Quill trying to trying to revive Gamora. Well, Gamora is um, alive. Gamora. Oh, no, no, no. Got... She's not. She's not. Because when, when they when they board his ship at the end of the movie, there's a big screen saying searching and it's a it's a and he's searching for Gamora. So um old Gamora, um you know, past Gamora seems to have disappeared. I think she disappeared in, in a cloud of ash when Tony Stark snapped his fingers. So um Quill I think is gonna be questing for Gamora. And if Gamora can be revived or found despite having been sacrificed for the Soul Stone then I suppose the same could apply for the Black Widow. Okay. Well, look, I think that's uh, I think that's a good segue. Like, unless we want to talk about Black Widow anymore. No, no. Do you want to talk about your time travel issues? Yeah, because I'm nearing an hour. Yeah, because I, I want to I want to kind of talk through my understanding of the timeline now because, like, I, I think I've got an understanding of it, but you know, I'd love to see if you guys agree with it. Right. So basically, from my understanding, like what. Tilda Swinton says is accurate, right? That basically, at this point in time, there's actually two separate timelines now in the MCU. We're going to say timeline A is the timeline of the film that we are, of the characters that we are, the characters that we were basically watching, right? So in timeline A, all this stuff happens. There's Thanos snaps his finger fingers in Infinity War. Five years pass, and then they go back and travel in time, but don't make a rip, basically don't make an influence on the past. So the past, they don't affect the past in any way, basically. And then they mm-hmm. go back to the future and things go on, right? But the problem is that they do affect the past. So in timeline A, if you think about it, in timeline A, Thanos has to snap his fingers in order for all of this stuff to happen, right? But basically, there's a split in the timeline in basically at 
Guardians of the Galaxy, at the beginning of Guardians of the Galaxy, right? Because at the beginning of Guardians of the Galaxy, now what we have in time in timeline A, Guardians of the Galaxy happens as usual, right? What happens now in timeline B is that because timeline A Thanos is killed in his garden, he's beheaded by Thor. Timeline B Thanos basically disappears from his universe at the time of Guardians of the Galaxy and moves into timeline A into the future, into 2019. And he is killed there, right? Which means that in timeline B, Thanos, the snap of the fingers doesn't occur, right? So all of this stuff... But Darren, time travel never, ever, ever makes sense. It just just doesn't make sense. No one has ever done it it in a way that it makes sense. Isn't it all all fixed by Captain Marvel going back in time in order to put the the Infinity Stones back where they were found? No. It's not. It's not. It's not, because you can put... So, the their point of taking the Infinity Stones is that, as far as the Infinity Stones are concerned, they're gone for, like, five seconds, right? Because they take them, and then they engineer it, so they put them back at exactly the same point. But you can't re-engineer Thanos. The big schism in the timeline is actually that Thanos is gone. Like, from, I think, 2014 onwards, Thanos never snaps his fingers in the alternate reality. Right, so, uh, uh, and I think actually they're they're hinting at this idea of two timelines now because I'm not sure they'll make movies in two timelines, but I think there exists now two separate timelines, mainly because you have a very important moment where remember how they lose the Tesseract immediately after the Avengers film, right? They lose the Tesseract because Loki escapes with it. Right, mm, that's yeah. a huge deviation in the timeline, right? Which means that Loki is potentially still alive in timeline B. I think that's how they're going to get Tom Hiddleston back into the franchise by basically. Can I, can I ask, like, how? So Loki disappears with a Tesseract. How do they get it back? They go back further in time. So yeah, they go back they, to yeah, 1970. They go back to, they go, right. So they go back to the 70s and yeah. and Stark picks it up there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So basically, okay, the timeline. The timeline diverges once at Avengers, where Loki escapes, but that's a minor divergence, right? And then there is a huge divergence when Thanos, his entire army, and all of his guys disappear. Gamora no longer exists in timeline B, because she's now in timeline A, right? Nebula is dead. Timeline B Nebula is dead, straight up. Only timeline A Nebula exists. So... Like, I don't know if they're going to... I hope they address this. It seems like Marvel would not have something this major happen without addressing it in later films. And I'm, I'll be very interested in how they address it in the future. So I don't think they will. I don't think they will address it. I also don't think Thor is actually going to be in any more <laughs> Guardians uh, movies because he got the sign-off at the... Um, at the end of Avengers, like I think, I think only certain characters got a proper uh, got a sign off. I don't, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but when the credits rolled, some characters got a special. Um, their name appeared and then their signature appeared in the middle, yeah. um, and it's the ones that are being retired. So I, I, I don't think they're going to follow this up. I think this is simply just um, uh, that something that comes along with time travel. It just will never, ever, ever make sense. Yeah, so this was also why I got frustrated by the Captain America ending. 
Because in my mind, given that there are two timelines, two distinct timelines now, Steve Rogers goes back to 1970 or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, it right? doesn't make sense. So how does Steve choose to follow timeline A to live through timeline A instead of timeline B? No, it, do- it doesn't make sense. Yeah. But you have to – you just have to – accept it or we never ever have time travel in the film or fiction ever again which that's not going to happen so yeah <laughs> so you just have to hope they don't do it so poorly that it is really irritating and impossible to accept and i don't think they did it that poorly no no, no i i definitely i don't feel like they did it really poorly but i i definitely feel like in i think for this film it's fine but from a general marvel fans perspective I think they've opened a can of worms here, right? That future filmmakers and future writers are going to have to somehow resolve. I mean, I think there's a reason why time travel is a can of worms that is rarely opened. And, um, you know, they make the joke about Back to the Future, right? Because basically Mm -hmm. in all of those films that they cite, the time travel is a closed loop, right? Like, basically, you go back in time, but you were always meant to go back in time because... Like, yeah. whatever you did in the past, you were supposed to do for the future to be the way you currently experience it, essentially, right? So it's like that sort of closed-loop type of philosophy of time, while in this film, it's not a closed-loop philosophy of time. There's multiple universes spouting off and all this type of stuff. Um, look, I, look, I agree with you, Anja, that if you think too hard, hard about it, it starts not really making a whole bunch of sense. But, like... I. I there's a part of me that feels like they are going to explore this more because why would they have had that whole explanation with the ancient one, like Tilda Swinton's character? If anyway, that's <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll yeah. see. Remains yeah. to be seen. Yeah, only one franchise has ever pulled off alternate timeline cleanly, and that's the, the Star Trek reboot. And the the way they got away, they only got away with it because they just sort of. Wave their hands around and said, "Okay, that's it. We're in an entirely new timeline. Forget, forget the entire Star Trek TV show or the Star Trek movies of the past. Um, they exist in another timeline. We exist in a new one, uh, and never the twain shall meet." Yeah. Um, but we'll see. We'll see whether anything transpires. Like you, I think there is a possibility of Loki coming back. Uh, it all depends on whether um, Tom Hiddleston or Chris Hemsworth gets to be the next James Bond. Really. Mm-hmm. Are they both in the running for James Bond? They're both in the running. Really? Mm. Wow. Wow. Okay. I was certain that Hemsworth was going to keep playing Thor. Because he's not... I think he's younger than RDJ and Chris Evans. Um, Yeah, he is. And it feels like he's hitting his stride, right? Like... But he's also also signed up for Men in Black, also with Tessa Thompson, I should add. mm. Um... So who knows? He might be. He might. He might be. Uh, he might decide that he wants to uh, to jump into other fictional universes and other franchises. Mm. So, any concluding thoughts on the movie before we wrap up? Um, look, I mean, I think we all agree that this was a pretty good film that really stuck the landing. Um, yeah, like I don't really. Uh, I think I'm really looking forward to actually watching it again. I, I, I actually yeah, am really keen to like sit down and rewatch this film with some of the like, you know, just rewatching the film and trying to pick up on more details, right? Like, mm. this definitely feels like a film that. And look, to be honest, 
I think the sign of, is, of a good film is that you keep thinking about it, right? And I got home last night and I couldn't stop really thinking about this film. I woke up this morning and I was talking to Mags about my time travel thing, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, trying to explain it to her. So it was like, yeah, I mean, clearly they've done some, something right. So good work, Marvel. You've done, like, you've, you've pulled it off. Really yeah, it was work. brilliant. Yeah, mm. yeah. And my final concluding thought is hats off to the Russo brothers. Um, setting aside Thor Ragnarok, which they didn't direct, they've directed the four best movies, in my view, in the entire MCU, namely Winter Soldier, Civil War, Infinity War, and Endgame. And um, and that is a that is a that's a that's a filmography to be proud of. Even though they're just sort of poppy superhero movies, they are the I think the four flagship entries in in. The, um, the MCU, um, discounting Thor Ragnarok and the first Avengers. So um, it's an amazing thing that they've, they've done. Mm-hmm. Agree. Mm. Max? Um, the only thing was a, a shout-out to another favourite scene that I completely forgot about, which was Captain America wielding the um Oh, the yes. Hammer. Yes, Captain America. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, that was fantastic. Yeah. yeah, I thought that was a fantastic fan moment, um, bringing those two together, and yeah, yep. I will remember that. <laughs> yeah, that was that was definitely an audience cheering moment in our cinema. And I think it was great that Thor was happy for him, and I thought Thor's line yeah. of, here, you take the little one, was, was, was hilarious. <laughs> Love <Yeah. it. laughs> I love that. Um, okay, well, look... I guess on a final note, I'd like to thank everybody here and everyone who's listening um, for kind of sticking with us. We've done this podcast basically out of love because, you know, we really enjoy talking about films. We really don't get anything else out of it apart from our love of conversing about films. So um, thank you. But we're happy to to monetize. So if anyone wants to advertise, (laughs) do let us know. PopCultureDD at gmail.com. That's PopCultureDD at gmail.com. Yeah, but thank you, everybody. Jerry, Anager, Mags, thank you very much for coming on this journey with me. Um, Like, it's been so much fun. Like, yeah, it's been really fun and satisfying. Darren, so. it sounds like you're saying your goodbyes. We're oh, I'm, I, I, that's right. <laughs> but anyway, I, on an anniversary episode, basically, I'm saying this. But, oh, my God. Yes. Aww. Okay. Yeah. Well, no, so, it's been great. Yeah. So, um, yeah, thank you for another really fun and interesting episode. And we'll see everybody again on Monday for Game of Thrones, the Battle of Winterfell. Yes! <laughs> More battles! <laughs> More climactic group battles. Whoa! We'll see if Game right. of Thrones can match them. More MCU. death counts! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks guys. Yeah. Bye! Bye! Bye. Bye.